Good morning. You guys doing okay? Everybody good? Good. How's the fast going if you're doing the fast? <laughs> kind of like... It's not meant to be easy. It's hard, right? It's difficult. If you've never done a fast before, though, it is also extremely beneficial. Very, very, very good for you. Not easy, though. I remember when I first started doing the fast, uh, the 40-day fast, I started about, about 18 years ago, three years or so before I started the church, and I was younger and um, more adventurous, and I remember the last 10 days of the 40-day fast, I wouldn't eat anything, and I wouldn't tell anyone. I'd do it by myself. I wouldn't tell anyone that I was doing it, and the last 10 days, no food whatsoever, and you get about day seven into not eating and only drinking water, and you start looking at even like people, like, you know, like in cartoons, when they look at someone and they look like a big like turkey or chicken leg or something, and you're like, huh? You know, maybe we could go there. I don't know. But, um, and so uh, it was tough, but I remember it was always beneficial. It was always good. So if you're doing it, even if you mess up, you know, get back on track and, and keep pushing through it. God will, God will bless you for it. So glad you're doing that with us. So we are in First Samuel. If you've never been to this church before, we go through whole books of the Bible, word for word, line by line. If you're just jumping in, um, that's okay. Let me, let me kind of quickly catch up to speed a little bit, and then you can go back and read First Samuel if you want. It won't even take you that long. But First Samuel is in the Old Testament, ninth book of the Old Testament. Focuses, and I say this every weekend, but just in case there's new people in here, focuses primarily on two individuals. One is King Saul. He is the first king of the Jewish people. And um, he has gone down the path of rebellion to God, selfishness, doing whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it, just kind of living for himself. That's taken him down a pretty bad direction. And then the second person we focus on is the second king of the Jewish people, David, arguably one of the most famous people in the Bible, one of the most pivotal individuals in the Bible, not a perfect man, as we will even see today, makes many mistakes, but he is a man, the Bible says, after God's heart that he is at least pursuing God. He's in a relationship with God. So he's going kind of a different direction than Saul is. Saul hates David. Saul, at this point in the word of God, is pursuing David, hunting him down. He wants to kill him, okay? So in chapter 24 that we were in last weekend, Saul is continuing to hunt down David. David and his men are hiding in a cave. He's got about 600 men. They're hiding in a cave, David, or I'm sorry, Saul stops with his thousands of men and he has to use the bathroom, right? He has to, the Bible says, relieve himself. So he goes into the cave, he's relieving himself, and it happens to be the same cave that David is in. This gives David the perfect opportunity to, to get revenge, to kill Saul, to end this whole pursuit thing, but he chooses not to. He acts in mercy, he acts in grace, he follows Saul outside of the, the cave and basically tells him, I, sh I, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And Saul kind of repents, kind of. We're going to learn next weekend that's not legit, but he kind of repents and um, he goes back to, to his palace. And David at that point could have followed him back to the palace. Seems like everything's okay, right? But what we talked about last week and we saw it in David was a principle that Jesus gives us in the book of Matthew, that we are to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves, gentle and wise. They were supposed to use both of these things. David was gentle. He didn't harm Saul, but he was also wise. He didn't go the way that Saul went because he knew that that wasn't a good idea, right? That he was going to put himself in a position he shouldn't be in. That's what we talked about last week. And we live in that, that tension, right? That balance, of living in gentleness and also being wise about it. We need both of these things, okay? This week, we're gonna talk about a couple of things that come up. And, and what chapter 25 is, is we're gonna kind of pause on the pursuit of Saul running after David. And there's kind of a side story about a guy named Nabal. He's gonna be fun. We're gonna talk about him today. He's a, he's a fun individual. There's a, there's a little side story here that we're gonna focus on. And what's gonna come up in this side story are some kind of... Uh, uh, mile markers of walking as a Christian. Things like generosity, things like self-control, things like being humble, things like being hungry. I don't mean physically hungry, spiritually hungry, that these things are going to come up. And we're just going to ask ourselves, are, are, are we displaying these things, right? Have we reached these mile markers in our walk with Jesus Christ? That's what we'll talk about today, okay? Glad you guys are here. So uh, everything will be on the screen. 
You should have got a notes handout. Everything will be in that. Um, if you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament, the 25th chapter of the ninth book, that is 1 Samuel. And um, everything's on the app. If you have uh, the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes. Good to see you. Let's pray. Let's dive into this. We, we have a, it's a little bit longer of a chapter, but it won't take us any longer. So it's just a lot of narrative that I have to read. So um, that's it. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room this morning. I thank you, God, for a safe, uh, warm, comfortable place for us to come and worship and to, um, to worship and, and to study your word, God. Lord, uh, I pray, God, that as we study, that we learn a little bit more about you, God, that we learn a little bit more about how we're to live and that you bless this church, God, and bless us as individuals, God. We don't just pray for ourselves, though. Pray for every church in our city. Pray for our other campuses, the churches in those cities. And we just pray, God, that, that everything we do this morning, that it honors you and in some way blesses you back, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, bear with me. I usually say I'm going to read a little. I'm, I'm not. I'm going to read a pretty good chunk here. So, um, And then we'll go back and we'll break it down. Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn for him, and they buried him by his home in Ramah. David then went down to the wilderness of Paran. A man in Mon had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent 10 young men instructing them, go up to Carmel, and when you come to Nabal, greet him in my name. Then say this, long life to you and peace to you, peace to your family and peace to all that is yours. I hear that you're shearing. When your shepherds were with us, we did not harass them and nothing of theirs was missing the whole time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. So let my young men find favor with you for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have on hand to your servants and to your son, David. David's young men and went and said all these things to Nabal on David's behalf and they waited. Nabal asked them, who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, my meat that I butchered for my shears and give them to these men? I don't even know where they're from. David's men retraced their steps. When they returned to him, they reported all these words. David said to his men, all of you put on your swords. So each man put on his sword and David also put on his sword. About 400 men followed David while 200 stayed back with the supplies. Okay, so before the author moves back on to the story of David, and this again is kind of like a side story, the author briefly mentions that Samuel the prophet has died. All of Israel gathered at his funeral, which alludes to the fact that Saul and David were probably both at the funeral as well. Now, if you haven't been with us, the book of 1 Samuel is kind of a transition in the history of God's people. What I mean by that is the first king is, is, is appointed in 1 Samuel. So that moved the people of God, the Jewish people, from a, a system of judges, which was a political system, but it seems to be the one that God kind of wanted for his people, the system of judges, and it moves from that to a monarchy which God didn't want for his people, but his people wanted it. So God continued to still bless his people, even though they were living in a system that he didn't really prefer for, you know, for them to have. But now they're living in an era of kings, in an, area, in an era of royal families. That's the transition that has taken place here. So now the last judge, Samuel, has, has passed on, okay? So after the funeral... David went down to the wilderness of Paran, that's in southeastern Israel, just in case you want to know. And in this area, there was a man named Nabal. His name means stupid. And man, that sucks, right? <laughs> I mean, imagine that childhood when your name means stupid. We'll get to that a little bit later. 
He was a harsh man, it says, an evil man, and he was married to a woman who it says was exceptionally beautiful and exceptionally intelligent. We'll see that a little bit later too. So he was a very rich man, very influential man. He had thousands and thousands of sheep and goats and they were getting sheared in a festival, in an, <coughs> pardon me, in an area called Carmel. And during that time, it doesn't tell us all the details, but we can make a lot of inference with this. During that time, it looked like David had some kind of understanding or maybe a formal agreement with Nabal to protect his men while they were getting all the sheep taken care of. They would kind of stay off at the distance, make sure nothing got stolen, made sure nothing got hurt, made sure no one invaded them or, or did anything like that, and they kind of watched. So it was either a formal agreement or it might've just been David being a good neighbor, right? And looking out for his neighbor and making sure that no one hurt this guy's property or any of his men. So because David had kind of done Nabal a solid, right? Doesn't he, I don't know if anyone says that anymore, but, I, but because David had kind of done this for Nabal, he sent a couple of men, two Nabal's men and said, hey, we need some food. Um, it's a feast. You, you, you're, you, know, you are a very rich man, Nabal. If you have anything left over, can we just have some provisions? Can we have some food? Now, Nabal's response was not a good one. He goes, who's David? He knew who David was because he said, who is Jesse's son? Well, that's David. So he knew the family of David. What this is, is just blatant disrespect. He's saying, David's nothing. He even goes, I hear there's a lot of slaves running away from their masters. He's basically calling David a slave to Saul. He's, he's being a jerk. I almost said a bad word right there. He's being a jerk. <laughs> not a bad, bad word. It wasn't like a swear word, but not a nice word. So this was blatant disrespect. And, and it could have even been possibly him breaking a, a legitimate deal. So here's, th this is kind of a definition of selfishness, but this is what Nabal is doing. In his selfishness, Nabal places his belongings, his abilities, his provisions, his money, his comfort, his convenience over respecting others, making a sacrifice for others and helping others. If you go back and read it, even look how many times he goes, my stuff, my things, what I have, mine, 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 I, I, I. He says it over and you expect me to do something for these people? Selfish. Not the best response. That's not the, the, not the best response from Nabal. Now, David's men take all that and they go, okay, we'll go tell David. They go back to David and David also doesn't respond very well. It says after that they retrace their steps, they go back to David. David didn't respond in a very good way. He goes, uh, he said, what? Okay, guys, grab your swords. We're gonna go kill them all. That's what he said. This is the most overtly man thing in the world right here. He was talking about me. Let's go, let's go fight, right? Let's go. No one's going to talk bad about me. No one's going to disrespect me. We're going to go, we're going to go get revenge and I'm going to go get my friends to go do it with me. That's what David did right here. And this is not the response. We know it's not the response because Peter said, right? In the New Testament that we are to not return evil with more evil. That's not the way the follower of God responds when bad things happen to us. So even if we are correct, even if we're right, that's not how we're to respond. Now, listen, if you're a believer in here, I, I just wanna be careful how I say this. I never wanna paint the picture of kind of an us versus them mentality with non-believers. But here's the thing, if you are a believer in here, we are not better than anyone else, but we have an understanding of a knowledge that calls us to a higher standard of how we live our lives. And we are not to lower our standards just because people treat us unfairly. We are not to compromise those standards that we are to live by as Christians just because people may treat us evilly. We do, evilly, I don't know if that's a word, with evil intentions. We do not return evil with more evil. That's wrong. The old cliche, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. That is not the way that we do it. But David didn't respond well either, okay? Again, I got a chunk to read here. Bear with me. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed at them. The men treated us very well, 
when we were in the field, we weren't harassed and nothing of ours was missing the whole time we were living among them. They were a wall around us both day and night and the entire time that we were herding the sheep. Now consider carefully what you should do because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his, his entire family. He is such a worthless fool, nobody can talk to him. Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes uh, of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she said to her male servants, go ahead of me, I'll be right behind you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. As she rode the donkey down a mountain pass hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming toward her and met them. David had just said, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey and knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, the guilt is mine, my Lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. My Lord should pay no attention to the worthless fool Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows. Imagine if you found out your wife talks about you like that. I know your servant didn't see my Lord's young men whom you sent. Now my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you, that's Saul, and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living, but he is flinging away your enemies like stones from a sling. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or revenge. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember your servant. It's a pretty classy, intelligent woman right here. So <laughs> one of Nabal's servants was present when David's men came and approached Nabal and, and they, they witnessed the whole thing. So this servant goes back to Nabal's wife, Abigail, told, told her the, the, the kind of reputation that David's men had. The whole time we were in Carmel, Nothing came missing. They protected us. They were good neighbors. They're good men. They have a good reputation. And then, of course, he said, our boss is a worthless fool, right? This guy's an idiot, and he's going to get a lot of people hurt. The important thing to take from that first part, though, is, is the men of David, right? And I would say they were all men of God because David was a man of God. They had a good reputation in the community. And we learn as, as, as Christians in the New Testament that we are to have a good reputation, not just with people like us, with all people. That means that Christians are to be hardworking, we're to be honest, we're to be careful with our words, we're to serve well in the community, be good citizens, if you will, to be honest in the marketplace and with our business dealings. We're to have a good reputation. Now that doesn't mean that the world will always honor our reputation, but God will always honor our reputation and our integrity. The Bible even says we keep our nose clean because when accusations are brought against us, if we have kept our nose clean, they have nothing to stand on. The Bible even goes so far to say, avoid even the appearance of things that are evil. Even if you're not doing evil, avoid things that even look evil. 
just to keep your nose clean, to have a good reputation in the world around us. David's men had that. So obviously the servant was mad because he knew he was probably, he was in danger. He was in danger. He was also probably afraid for his boss, Nabal. So Abigail, Nabal's wife, was probably also afraid and probably extremely embarrassed. This was her husband. So she comes up with a solution. She's, she's going to fix this. So here's what happens. Here's, here's kind of the fallout of Nabal's selfishness. We've already talked about selfishness once. We'll talk about it a couple more times before we leave here this morning. Selfishness leads us to make foolish decisions. What do I mean by that? We make foolish decisions when we're only thinking about ourselves because we're not thinking about anything else. Let me give you a good example. Um, let's talk about sexual sin for a second, right? Sex outside of marriage, promiscuous sex, things like that. So when we're not thinking about anyone else and we're just thinking about our desires, our pleasure, what we want, we're not thinking about the physical or maybe even psychological damage that we're doing to the person that we're having sex with casually. We're just thinking about how we feel. We're not thinking about the long-term effects. We're not even thinking about the things that can happen to us long-term. Maybe there's an unwanted pregnancy. Maybe we, we, we acquire a sexually transmitted disease. I'm not trying to make fun of anyone or hurt anyone's feelings if you've experienced those things, but you can probably attest that sometimes we get caught up in self and we don't think about long-term ramifications of our actions. We make selfish, foolish choices. Not only that, we start thinking worthless things. Man, look at our society. And again, I'm not trying to be mean this morning. We're not a society where people pack up their family and go see operas, right? Or go look at fine art or even film. Go watch four-hour films like the Ten Commandments or, or even, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this in church, things like The Godfather. And we don't go look at, or I consider that art. We don't go look at things like that. Um, that are artistic and, and cause us to get into deeper things. We're entertained by 20 second clips of people like doing TikTok dances on an airplane. Like that's worthless. That doesn't enrich you. That doesn't make you better. It doesn't teach you anything. I would argue that it actually kills brain cells, but we have become a society that thinks on worthless, stupid, shallow things. That's because we're only thinking about ourselves. We're not thinking about enriching the lives of others and going deeper and challenging our thought process. We just want to be entertained. Just entertain me for a second. It's worthless. And also when we're selfish, we put a burden on other people because we're only thinking of ourselves. We do a bunch of damage and someone has to clean it up. And we see because Nabal was selfish, his wife had to clean it up. Abigail had to come and clean up this mess that he had made. So she puts together a large gift pretty substantial gift, puts all this together, puts it on a bunch of donkeys. She's going out ahead of the servants. And as she approaches, they, she, 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 she sees David coming with his men. Again, I find this funny and I see it in my head. David is just steaming. And it says, right when he sees her, he had just said to whoever was riding next to him, do you know what he said about me? <laughs> God curse me if I don't kill everyone before morning, right? Do you, do you know what he said about me? Disrespected me. Guy next to him is probably like, okay, man, all right. And so they're riding along and they see Abigail. Abigail kneels down, pays homage, respect, and she even says, hey, I'll take the blame. It wasn't her fault, but you see the class and intelligence in this woman. She goes, I'll take the blame for this. I'll take responsibility for my husband's foolishness. Now, this is important. We laughed about it a second ago, but there's a lot in this right here. She goes, my husband Nabal means stupid. And she goes, and stupidity is all he knows. Now, here's the thing about Old Testament names, if you've never read the Old Testament. Virtually every name in the Old Testament has a deeper meaning. A lot of the times in the Old Testament, a lot of the names will have a prophetic meaning, which means God talked to the parents of the child and said, name your child this. And they would name their child this, and it would be prophetic. It would be indicative. It would foreshadow what this child was going to do in the future, okay? Sometimes children were named just out of, out of kind of mundane circumstances. Um, so some children were named certain things because they had red hair when they were born. So they would name them something that meant red or, or red hair or sometimes even hairy if they were born with a lot of hair on their body. Just something to describe the circumstances of the child being born. If you study the Old Testament, there are also some people in the Old Testament like Nabal who you're like, who in the world would name their child something that means stupid? 
Well, who would do that? A bad parent would do that. Seriously, a negligent parent, an abusive parent, a selfish parent. What does that lead us to believe about Nabal's life? It leads us to believe that his life probably was pretty bad. He had a rough upbringing. Maybe he had abusive parents or at least negligent parents. I'm sure growing up and your name meant stupid and everyone knew it. He was probably picked on. He was probably looked down on, maybe even beat up periodically by his peers. He had a rough life. But here's the thing. Abigail says stupidity is all he knows. That's not because he was bound to live in that label. He chose to never move past that label. What do I mean by that? Every single one of us in this room, regardless of what has happened to you, regardless of what society or even your parents have labeled you, we all have equal access to God. And in God comes knowledge, in God comes freedom, in God comes a new identity, in God comes truth, in God comes righteousness. The question is, are we humble enough and are we seeking those things? And if we are, we, have, we don't have to live in stupidity. We don't have to live in willing ignorance. We don't have to live being labeled by the things that have happened to us or that we've done in the past. The problem with Nabal is, is that he chose to live in it. He chose to stay exactly where they had put him. So Abigail stops David. And it's really, really interesting if you go back and read it. She reminded David that God was the reason he had had success up to this point. She reminded David, it was God that sent me here to, to intercept you so you don't get involved in a bunch of bloodshed. It is going to be God, David, that gives you a good future. And so it was her reminding him that all of your success in life, and listen, we need to be reminded of this. All of our success in life is because God is gracious. And when we trust God with everything, when we strive to live by the commands of God, God blesses us and we're gonna fail. But when we fail, we repent and we say, we're sorry. God cleans us up, gets us back on the horse, moves us along. Now, the reason I put success or true success, not just success, is because success can mean a lot of things. And, you know, we often think money or a PhD or a certain status at work, and there's nothing evil about those things as long as we steward those things correctly. But biblical success are things like good marriages, healthy relationships with your children, being a good citizen in the world around us, having a good reputation in the world, growing in your relationship with God. This is success. And these things only come, though, when we walk in a relationship with God. Also, how we handle our enemies, enemies matters to God. Abigail reminds David that, that, that revenge would not honor God. Not only that, if we take it into our own hands and we do evil things, eventually we're gonna have to pay for it later down the line. She goes, if you, if you don't do this, you're not gonna have a troubled conscience. You're not gonna have these things on your mind. You're not gonna have regret or remorse. I get a kick out of people, and, and maybe you'll disagree with me on this, but you know, whatever. Whenever people go, well, I would never change a thing because it made me who I am. Well, good for you. If I could go back in time, there's a lot I'd change. Anyone else made mistakes besides me? Do you know why I would go back and change things? Because I hurt people. And I don't want to hurt people. Well, it made me who I am. Well, good for you. There's a lot of damage though. And we don't, we don't want other people to be damaged because of our mistakes. That's a very foolish thing to say. Corey, if you could go back and change things, would you? Well, absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of people that I've hurt in, 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 in all of my foolish mistakes. And what Abigail is so brilliantly saying right here to David is, David, if you don't do this sin, you're not gonna have to worry about the guilt and shame of it later. You're not gonna have to worry about, there's, you'll have a clean conscience. So if we stay in a relationship with Jesus, if we pray for and love our enemies, not easy, but what Jesus tells us to do, if we handle conflict biblically, we talked about that last week, Jesus forgives us, Jesus empowers us, he helps us overcome the adversity in front of us, and he helps us to get over that shame and that guilt, or he protects us from even going into shame and guilt in the first place. And that's kind of nice, okay? Last part. Then David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed and may you be blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. 
Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have any males left by the morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. See, I have heard what you said and I have granted your request. Then Abigail went to Nabal and he was in his house holding a feast fit for a king. Nabal's heart was cheerful and he was very drunk. So she didn't say anything to him until morning light. In the morning when Nabal sobered up, his wife told him about these events. His heart died and he became a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. Then David sent messengers to speak to Abigail about marrying him. When David's servant came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David sent us to bring you to him as a wife. She stood up, paid homage with her face to the ground and said, here I am, your servant, a slave to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail got up quickly with her five female servants accompanying her, rode on the donkey following David's messengers and she became his wife. David also married Ahinoam, what, of Jezreel and the two of them became his wives. But Saul gave his daughter Mehal, oh, wait a second, David was already married, David's wife to Paul T, son of Laish, who was from Gallim. Don't worry, we're gonna talk about all the wives here in a second. So Abigail's calm and biblical approach to her husband and to David being angry de-escalated the situation. Look at this. When we are calm and we are biblical, de-escalates the situation. And David was able to acknowledge, okay, God is working something out right here. And this is where we learn uh, kind of a fundamental principle that, that all Christians should live by, that we are to be slow, hear me, slow to anger. Well, Corey, I was just born with a temper. We need to be born again out of that temper. Seriously, like we're not to live in that. That's, that's not of God. We're to be slow to anger. Now that's only possible. We know this because the Bible says that only the Holy Spirit can tame the tongue of man. That means that only the Holy Spirit can create in us a new persona to where we are slow to anger. So we're to rely on the Holy Spirit. Here's another good piece of advice. We should also rely on spirit-filled people to call us out to help us de-escalate sometimes. We need those people in our lives. So Abigail gets home, Nabal's throwing a huge party, eating like a king, drinking like a king, acting like a fool. She leaves him alone, but the next morning when he's sober, she says, hey, do you know how close you were to death? All of your men were about to die. You were about to die. You were this close. And it said at hearing that story, his heart died and he became a stone. That probably means that he had a massive heart attack or possibly a stroke. He was completely paralyzed. And then 10 days later, it says, the Lord not only struck him dead, David says, this is important, the Lord brought Nabal's evil back onto his own head. His, his evil caught up with him. Now, this is not a popular thing to talk about in church. This is not the way that, you know, mega church pastors, you know, get a big following on social media by talking about things like sin and repentance and consequences. But we have to talk about sin and repentance and consequences because it's in the word of God. It's very important. And it says in the Old Testament and it says in the New Testament, Jesus said it, that our sins will find us out. If we live in unrepented sin, it will catch up with us. There are consequences of that. Unaddressed sin has both temporary consequences and it has eternal consequences. If we don't deal with it in this life, let's say we're pathological liars and we don't repent of it and stop doing it. It's gonna damage relationships. It's gonna break down marriages. It's gonna make you lose a job. There's going to be consequences of that. We also know that there will be eternal consequences to that if we don't repent of it. But here's the beautiful thing. 
If we will just be humble and say, Lord, forgive me, we're forgiven. But that's not the whole of repentance. The other half of repentance, repentance means a turning away from. So when we truly repent, let's say, let's talk like adults here this morning, okay? Let's say last night you were looking at pornography. It's a sin, it's wrong, it's demoralizing towards men and women. It's an awful thing, you feel guilty about it. You come in here this morning, you say, Lord, forgive me for looking at pornography last night. But you do it again tonight. That's not repentance. That's just, that's just in the moment of feeling guilt and shame. You don't wanna feel that anymore, but you wanna keep going back to that thing. That's not repentance. Repentance is a turning away from it. But if we will ask God to forgive us, he forgives us. And he will also give us, listen, he will give us the strength to move past those things. We're not gonna be perfect, but he will give us, the Bible says we're more than overcomers. He will forgive us and help us move beyond those addictions, beyond those sins, beyond those things. And he'll help us and he takes away shame and he takes away guilt. But if we're not careful, our sins will find us out. Let's talk about all these wives, right? Now listen, and I don't have a comprehensive, I don't know all the reasons why this stuff is in the Bible. I'll just be honest with you. But at the end of this chapter, a lot of us have probably forgotten that David was married this whole time. He was married to a woman named Michal, which was Saul's daughter. Obviously, you know, you got to give him some grace on that one. They couldn't stay together. She actually kind of stabbed him in the back and turned him in and lied about him. So anyways, so, so Saul had already given her to another guy. Um, so he marries Abigail. She's beautiful. She's intelligent. She, she's single now, right? So <laughs> sees an opportunity there. Makes sense. And then all of a sudden it throws in this third woman. At this point, we're like, what is going on here? The Bible clearly states that marriage is one man, one woman exclusively for life, that polygamy is not accepted, that polyamorous, that's the big buzzword now in our culture, polyamorous or open relationships, those things are not correct. The Bible says this, there's just four examples, there's a lot more. So why in the heck is it so prevalent in the Old Testament? So here's the thing about the Old Testament. There is a lot in the Old Testament that is descriptive, but it's not prescriptive. What that means is it's describing a story. It's not telling you to do everything that's in that story, right? It's not prescribing that you do all these things. It is describing what happened in the past. And there are some things that God allows, but he does not approve. Even today, there are things that God allows. He doesn't smite us every time we do certain things, but he does not approve of certain things we do. Another thing that is important is to understand the culture during this time as well. During this time of David, a woman practically could not provide for herself at all. It was virtually impossible. It's not because God doesn't love women. It's because they lived in a culture though of, of misogyny and that women were not as important or valuable as men. That's not a biblical thing. That was a human thing once upon a time. So during this time, if there was a woman who was widowed or unmarried, a lot of times they would have to resort to prostitution or slavery in order just to eat and to make ends meet. So a lot of men who actually had good hearts would marry multiple women, not to have sex with them and things like that, but to bring them into the family, provide for them and protect them so they wouldn't have to resort to these awful things. Now, to be fair, there were a lot of men who were sexed crazed and did it for all the wrong reasons. One of them wrote a couple of books of the Bible, Solomon, right? Had 700 wives, mostly for political reasons. It wasn't all good and his life didn't end up very well but at least this sheds a little bit of light on why uh, uh, some of these people would have multiple wives. The first person to ever do this in the Bible was a man named Lamech, and it was not condoned by God, but he did it, okay? Doesn't answer all those questions, but it gives a little bit of insight on that. Okay, so let's talk about these principles that we, we, we promised we were gonna hit on. The first one we see is generosity, or I guess they're a lack thereof, right, with Nabal had a lot, but, but wasn't willing to give anything, right? Very much my, 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 me, me, me. Now, here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with success. When it talks about Nabal's success, there's nothing wrong with the fact that Nabal had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and had all these possessions. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have to remember where true success comes from. So if we know, listen, if we know that everything good that we have comes from God, it says that in the Bible, every good and gracious gift comes from God, every good and perfect gift comes from God. If we understand that, we understand that our finances, our possessions, our talents, our skills, our time, our abilities, 
all of that is given to us by God and we are managers for a time. And if we understand that we are just managing someone else's possessions, we live a lot more open-handed when we understand that it's not mine. It's God's, right? So I will distribute it, whatever that is, however God wants me to distribute it. You know, here's what we do. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to be rude and I'm not trying to preach any kind of like weird prosperity thing with you, with you or anything like that. But our response to generosity, maybe not out loud, but in our minds is often, well, when I have more money, I'll, I'll do better things with my money. Well, when I have more time, I'll, I'll serve at the church or I'll do something for a nonprofit. When I have more, I'll do more. Now, Jesus says that's not true. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Jesus says, those who are unfaithful with a little are unfaithful with a lot. He also says, those who are faithful with a little are faithful with a lot. Now, listen, hold it for a second. Is it possible that we don't experience certain things in our life because God knows that our heart is not generous, that God knows that we would not be good stewards of those things? Well, let's say you're an entry-level position at your work. Well, if I was just vice president, I would do this and this and fix that and that. And God's like, well, wait a second. You're at the entry-level position and you show up 20 minutes late every day. And you don't work 40 hours a week and you're lazy and you complain all the time. So if you're not faithful with this, why in the world do you think you'd be faithful with this? It doesn't make sense. That's what God says to us. But we say that to ourselves all the time. Well, if I won the lottery, I'd just be so good to everyone. So so these things are just not true. And Jesus shows us that in 16.10 of Luke. So we have to ask ourselves, is our heart positioned correctly? Are we open-handed with all the things that God has given us? Are we generous people? Maybe even more difficult than generosity is self-control. Are we people who demonstrate self-control? When we are wronged or when, when we find ourselves in a stressful or tense situation, do we produce the fruit of the Spirit? Is there evidence in our life of the fruit of the Spirit of self-control? It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, again, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, and we only get and produce the fruit of the Spirit if we're walking in step with the Spirit. How do we do that? Got to throw it in there. We pray, and we read the Word of God. We build this relationship with God, and self-control is one of those, those fruits that comes up from us when we're walking in a relationship with God. Do we understand the cost of not having self-control in our life? Man, some of you older cats in this room, I bet you do. Seriously, I'm 44 years old. I'm old enough to know that when I lose my control, that I do a lot of damage, that friendships get messed up, that relationships get messed up, that bridges get burnt, that jobs get lost, that damage happens when we don't have self-control. And those of you who've lived any chunk of life, you know that in the absence of self-control comes a lot of chaos. A lot, look at our, again, look at our society. Look at how we're living now. Do we have self-control? Here's two more that are important. Are we humble people? When we act selfish, when we act foolish, when we're vindictive, when we're gossipy, when we want vengeance and we're confronted about it, are we humble enough to go, you're right, I'm not acting right. Just like when Abigail approached David on his way to go kill a bunch of guys because they disrespected him. Are we humble enough to where someone comes into our path and says, hey, Corey, like, chill out for a second. You're being out of control that we're like, you're right. You're right. I need to humble myself. I need to ask God to forgive me. I may need to ask some people to forgive me. Are we humble when we're called out on not living the way we should be? Let's go a step further. Even greater than that, are we repentant when we do things that God told us not to do? Well, there he is, Corey being all legalistic. You worried about losing your salvation, Corey? Nope. 
I'm not, not, that's not it at all. I don't walk constantly afraid of God. I'm in fear of God in a proper way, knowing who God is. But here's the thing. Every time I make a mistake and every time you make a mistake, you should do this as well. I ask God to forgive me, not because I'm afraid of my salvation, not because I'm afraid of getting zapped by a lightning bolt. Listen, if I call myself a Christian, I am saying that not only I follow Christ, but he is my husband, that I love him more than anything else. He is the husband, I am the bride. And even if we're not going to get divorced, if I do something that upsets him, because I love him, I say, I am sorry. What is wrong with Christians in repentance? We get offended when pastors say, you need to repent for your sin. Well, I did one time six years ago when I got saved and you've been perfect since? I haven't been, my gosh. So whenever we make a mistake, we need to, repentance is not a one-time transaction. It is a lifestyle. And again, it's not just saying, God, I'm sorry. It's turning away from the things that God doesn't approve of. Yes, do we walk in grace? My Lord, Paul says grace upon grace is what we walk in. But listen, sin should still bother the Christian. Someone hear me in here? There are literally, like, like on our sermons sometimes on YouTube, people get on there, I don't know who they are or where they're from, but man, dude talks about sin a lot because Jesus talked about sin a lot. The Bible has given us the, the, the instruction and the direction on how to be liberated from a life that is riddled with sin in a, in a future and eternity that, that, that pulls us away from God if we live in sin. Yeah, we need to talk about sin. And, and again, God is gracious and he's quick to forgive, but we have to talk about it. Are we humble? Are we repentant? And then the last thing, are we hungry? My wife used to be a chemist and in chemistry and biology, she has degrees in chemistry and biology that always say healthy organisms are always growing and evolving. I know people get scared by the word evolution or evolving, but, but, but you understand they're constantly gravitating into something more like what they're planted in. And so as Christians, we call it sanctification. That not only are we, we grow, we're growing in our relationship with God, we are becoming more and more like our creator. We are evolving to become more and more like the one that saved us. We talk more like him and think more like him and act more. It's called sanctification. So the question is this, do we have a desire to learn and grow in truth and holiness? Well, I don't know what holiness means. Look it up. Do you have a desire for that? Listen, on that, on that note, if you don't know what the word holiness means, and I'm not trying to be a jerk in here this morning. I had someone one time send me an email and they're like, why don't you go deeper into the scripture? Go deeper into the scripture. And I just said to them, I want to go just deep enough to, to inspire some curiosity from my congregation so they will dig a little bit. I don't need to do all the digging for you. You need to grab a shovel yourself. You need to open that book yourself. I don't need to answer every single question from you. I need to teach a 30,000 foot view. And I'm not saying any of you are doing this but you also need to pick up a shovel and dig. You also have to want to have a desire to know more. If all the scripture you ever hear is just from me, that's a problem. You need to break open that book and read it for yourself. So Nabal could have went deeper, but he didn't want to go deeper. So are we content with just the shallow things? Are we content living in willing ignorance? Listening to a sermon the other day, because when you're doing a fast from secular media, you run out of good Christian movies in about three days. So I was watching a sermon the other day and this pastor got up there and he held his Bible and he said, it blows my mind that people live in ignorance. People who claim to be Christians, claim to be Christians, never break this book open. When this book holds the truth about eternal life or eternal death and that so many people neglect it, the people don't want to pick it up. They don't want to read it. Not only, let's say, even if you are saved and you pray, this tells us more about who God is and how we live in a more intimate relationship with him, how we bless those around us, how we live in our communities. This book holds the words, the keys of life. Why wouldn't more people want to pick it up? Listen, having a relationship with God should not just be about avoiding hell. It should be about getting to know your Savior getting to know the creator. I am the creation and we should have a hunger to know the creator. But like Paul said, right? Paul said this to the Corinthian church. I want to give you meat, but all you want is milk. 
You know, people talk about, they go, well, you know, we just need to stick to the gospels. That's, that's only, you know, there's 62 other books of the Bible besides those four. And those are worth reading too. Some people just want to hear Jesus loves you. Well, that, that's great. Jesus loves you. There's a lot more deep information in the word of God that God also wants you to know. That's why the book says that every single word in here is there for correction and reproof and, and, and inspiration and lifting up and edification. All of this is there for a reason. And so Paul gets mad at the Corinthians. He's like, man, you guys don't even want to go deep. I want to give you meat. I want to give you something that you have to chew on and digest and think about a little bit. Because you guys don't even want that. You just want the easy stuff. You just want to, not you, but people just want to walk in. They want to hear that God loves them, that they're okay. They don't have to make any drastic changes in their life. They can go back out and everything's good. And that's what most mega churches teach, right? And it, pardon my language, it would have pissed Paul off. There's a lot more. There's a lot more than just the milk. There's meat that we are to chew on. My wife's going to watch that later and be like, Corey, why? <laughs> so here's the beautiful thing. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you, what, what's been done to you, listen to me, regardless of the labels that life has put on you, all of us have equal access to the creator God. All of us have equal access to salvation to the change that should come from salvation, to a fulfilling experience and relationship with God. The question is this, do we have that blue word right there? Do we want it? Do we have the desire for it? Do we want to get a deeper, again, it's not just about going to heaven because the beauty of heaven is not going to be the streets of gold and the pearly gates and you know the, the foundations of, of heaven that are made from isotropic stones and all that. that. That's not the beauty of heaven. The beauty of heaven is getting to walk around with Jesus. But if we don't want to walk around with him here, why would we want to walk around with him forever? Do we want something deeper? Hungry people, hungry for the deeper things of God. Is that what we want? Okay. Thank you guys so much for being here. Will you bow your heads with me, please? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you are in here and maybe you are not a believer and you have some questions, or maybe you're a new believer and you have some questions, up here on my right, your left is Pastor Rachel. If you have any questions for Rachel, she would be more than happy to talk with you. Um, she works with all of our life groups here at the church and she can help you get plugged in, whatever the case may be. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything. It does not matter what it is. Let someone pray with you if you have a prayer request. All the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table and the majority of these pillars in the middle of this room, there's bread and wine. That is communion. That represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We invite everyone to take communion as long as you ask God to forgive you of any sin that may be in your heart. You can get the communion, go back to your seat, take it with your friends, your family, by yourself, however you feel comfortable. Please be respectful of everyone else in the room if you decide not to do that. And then eventually Mitch will dismiss us, okay? Let me, let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, for all of us in this room, as we study this, this passage today, God, I pray, Lord, that you make us uh, generous people. I pray that you make us people of self-control, Lord, people who are humble and repentant. And God, maybe above all those things, just people who are hungry, Lord, who want to know you more and live in a closer relationship with you. God, protect us, keep us safe, be with our family, our friends. God, be with us. Help us, Lord, navigate this crazy life, God. And Lord, let us lean on you more. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Appreciate you so much. You're welcome to help yourself.